And welcome back to season two of Music Madness. Back again, this is your host, Kent. This is the first episode of our second theme. Since we're just starting season two, for maybe if you're new to the podcast, a quick reminder of what the Music Madness podcast is all about. I pick a musical theme. Last season, we did the Grammy Album of the Year winners. I lay out the contestants in the theme in an NCAA-style bracket, and then you, the listeners, vote on who moves on. I love learning more about the artists, so what I'm going to do is go through a bit of history about the artist, the album, or the song, and then we move on until we have a theme champion. I had a lot of fun with the Grammys theme, but I'm really excited about this theme. There are some amazing artists in the theme, and surprisingly, there is only one crossover artist from the last theme. In the Grammy theme, we really focused on specific albums. This season, we're going to focus on specific artists as a whole. And now for the big reveal on what our theme is going to be for season two. No point in holding it back anymore. I'm going to call this theme Dead Too Young. I define that as an artist who died younger than the age of 50. That's not to say there weren't plenty of artists that have died after the age of 50 and it was still too young, but I really want to focus on what could have been. Most of these artists were in the prime of their career, had a lot of potential in front of them. Some were solo artists, some were members of a band or a group. We'll talk about the musician and the potential of loss from that individual. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about some of the groups and what happened to those groups when this person passed away as well. Now, I do want to address this. This may be a tough topic for some people. It's certainly going to be sad. It's going to talk about people that were going through some things. I'm going to try really hard to be respectful, but a number of these people had serious health issues, be it mental or physical. I'm not glorifying what happened to them. If you're struggling with your own health, please find some help. I've added a link to mental health resources as well as substance abuse abuse dependency hotline in the description. If you're dealing with anything, please seek help. This isn't to say that this is good what happened to them. It's more to try and glorify what they did while they were alive. So what are we going to be doing in this episode? As I mentioned in the intro episode, we're still doing brackets, but in order to spend a little bit more time with the artists this season, I've cut down the number of contestants in our bracket from 64 to 48. What we're going to do is called play-ins. If you watch the NCAA basketball tournament, they always have some games before the tournament actually starts, and that's what we're going to do here. What this means is we're going to have two artists battle their way into the bottom four seeds in the bracket. So by the end, we'll actually have 32 contestants in the bracket. There are two five, two six, two seven, two eight seeds exactly like that in each bracket. We're going to walk through the play-ins for the four bracket for the lower seeds in the first four weeks of the podcast this year. That's our eight artists each week. These are the lower seeds, so we're going to get to pay some more attention to the lower seeds than we did last season, which kind of excites me. Last time, we barely even got to talk about some of the artists that were eliminated in the first week. And I think we have a lot deeper pool with this group than we did with last year. Last season, I mean. So we still have four brackets. We're going to walk through the first bracket in this pod, so eight album, eight artists that uh, fit into this theme. I've broken our brackets out by the way the artist died. The first bracket we're going to walk through this week is health reasons. 
We're going to do it kind of like a lightning round and cover what caused the artist's death, what made them famous, their top songs, and what happened to their group or, mu- or their music after they passed away. So I've got a beer in my hand. Let's start walking through some artists and then we can get on to the madness. So for health reasons, I included a number of causes of death. I did include alcohol in this bracket because alcoholism is a nasty disease that has destroyed a lot of promising careers. So I'm going to include that in one in there. This also includes other diseases like AIDS, cancer, heart disease, and a bunch of other ways that people have passed away far too young. So with that, let's dive into our two eight seeds that are battling it out. So now that we've gone down to 48-8 artists, even these matchups are pretty well-known artists. You've probably heard some of their stuff. Our first artist is country artist Keith Whiteley. Whiteley was an up-and-coming artist in the late 80s. He had put out two albums in 85 and 88. Those two albums created 12 country singles, including Don't Close Your Eyes, I'm No Stranger to the Rain, and When You Say Nothing at All. When You Say Nothing at All has been remade a number of times. His albums and songs were nominated for AMA and CMA awards, and I'm No Stranger to the Rain was nominated for Country Song of the Year that year. In 1986, Whiteley made married country singer Lorraine Morgan. After their marriage, Morgan started to notice that Whiteley had a problem with alcohol. It was pretty well known throughout the country community uh, that he was he was had a problem. In fact, he got in a couple of serious car accidents while drunk and almost died that way, which would put him in a totally different bracket. Uh, Whiteley died in 1989 at the age of 34. He died in his sleep from alcohol poisoning. He had just finished up his third album, I Wonder Do You Think of Me, which was released three months after his death. The album had two more number one country songs on it, the title track and It Ain't Nothing. There have been a few albums released after his death, but it was an extremely promising career that was cut pretty short. Our next combatant for the eight seed in the health reasons bracket is Christopher Lee Rios, a.k.a. Big Punisher or Big Pun. Rios was Puerto Rican, born in the Bronx in New York City. Big Pun was seen as an up-and-coming rapper at the time. He was working his way up in New York City's underground rap scene and had started working on his first album in 1997 titled Capital Punishment. In 1997, he got connected with well-known rap producer Nobody, who had worked with artists like Jay-Z up to that point, but he really hit it big with Big Pun and the song I'm Not a Player, which was remixed into the song Still a Player, featuring another New York City Latino rapper, Fat Joe. Based largely on this song, his album went platinum. Big Pun joined rap group called Terror Squad with Big Joe. They produced an album which didn't do so well as his solo album. Big Pun's weight was always an issue. By age 21, he was already over 300 pounds. He went on a number of diets to lose weight, but he could never keep it off. He continued to gain more and more weight every time he fluctuated up and down. In 2000, he canceled an appearance on Saturday Night Live with Fat Joe and Jennifer Lopez, citing that he wasn't feel, feeling well. Two days later, he actually died of a heart attack and respiratory failure at 28 years old. And at the time of his death, he was 700 pounds. So, yeah, that's a that's a pretty serious health issue that uh, caused him to die. After his death, his second album, Yeah, Baby, was released. It sold some albums reaching gold status, 
but wasn't as good as his first album. It did reach number three on the rap charts, and another mixed album of some of his unreleased stuff called Endangered Species got into the top 10 on the Billboard 200. Bill, uh, Big Pun's career was sh- cut way too short by his weight. So there you can sign to see how this will go. Those are our two eight seeds for the health reasons bracket. We'll vote on them, and then one of the two of them will actually move into the final 32 for our bracket, and we'll face off against the number one seed in the health reason bracket, which we'll reveal in a couple weeks. So for our number seven seed in the health reasons bracket, um, we have Ellen Naomi Cohen, who is better known as Mama Cass or Cass Elliot. She lived a rather full life in the 32 years she was alive. She was in two groups before joining the Mamas and the Papas. The first was called the Big Three, and another one was called the Mugwamps. Neither band did much, but she met Denny Doherty, who is another founder of the Mamas and Papas, in the Mugwamps. Another band member named Zal Yanofsky went on to found the band The Lovin' Spoonful. And after the Mugwamps broke up, Doherty joined with John and Michelle Phillips in the band The New Journeyman. The band didn't really have a ton of success until Cass Elliott joined the group in 1965. And because there were two women in the band now, they needed a new name and they came up with the Mamas and the Papas. So that was when the band really took off. Uh, it was from here that her career really took off, too. Um, in the six years that the band was together, they produced a lot of hits. Their very first album was called If You Can Believe Your Eyes, and it went platinum. Singles California Dreaming and Monday Monday really drove sales. Monday Monday reached number one on the charts and was their best performing single ever. It won a Grammy for Best Pop Performance and was nominated for Record of the Year and a number of other awards. Um, On future albums, they seem to have a number of other bangers like Dedicated to the One I Love, Dancing in the Streets, and Dream a Little Dream of Me. I mean, these songs have been all over the place. If you've watched pretty much anything on TV or a movie in the last, I don't know, 40 years, you've probably heard a Mamas and the Papas song. I didn't even realize that all of those were Mamas and the Papas songs until I started listening to some of them when I was putting this together. In 1971, the band eventually broke up. Their last album didn't all do all that great, and Cass Elliott decided to try her own career. She put out about five albums on her own, but she really only had one song that did all that great, and it was Make Your Own Kind of Music, um, which has been featured on a number of TV shows and movies. She was a regular on TV shows at the time. She would fill in for Johnny Carson when he was gone. Um, She was a regular on Hollywood Squares. She performed two television specials. She did movies, acting. She was really everywhere. She even had a few shows in Vegas at the Flamingo. So because she was kind of a larger-than-life personality, she had a lot of rumors about her. Um, One was that she had perpetuated on her own, was that while she was on vacation in the Virgin Islands, a copper pipe fell on her head. Afterwards, her musical range increased three whole notes. Um, The other rumor was that she had died choking on a ham sandwich. This is so popular that it's become somewhat of a joke for other artists to reference in their music. Even Weird Al Yankovic referenced it in one of his songs, which was uh, kind of funny. That isn't how she died. Uh, it was not true. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. What really happened was in 1974, she was supposed to go on Johnny Carson, but she started to feel sick and collapsed backstage. A few months later, while she was performing in London, she went on a 24-hour partying bender with Mick Jagger, George Brown, who was an actress, and a journalist named Jack Martin. 
And the next morning, she was discovered dead in a flat owned by a name uh, man named Harry Nielsen. I mentioned this because another person on our list died in the same flat. In fact, in the same exact bedroom four years later. Kind of crazy about that, but we'll, we'll get to that at some point. She was only 32 years old and died of an apparent heart attack. The autopsy found no drugs in her system. She was known to partake, so it might have contributed to the weakness of her heart. Um, but it's kind of crazy that someone like that is still only a number seven seed. So we'll see what you think of that. Her opponent is another artist that's not known by their real name. Eric Lynn Wright, better known as Easy e who was the founding member of the gangster rap group NWA, which stands for N-Words with Attitude. Easy grew up in Compton, California. He co-founded Ruthless Records with his manager, Jerry Heller. After founding the record company, he put together NWA, which included Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Arabian Prince, and DJ Yella. Easy had collaborated with a number of these guys early on, but when they all came together, they created probably one of the most influential rap groups of all time. Their first album was Straight Outta Compton. It was released in 1988. It was shocking to modern audiences. The album spoke uh, to police brutality, uh, racial uh, segregation, and gave mainstream listeners a view into the life of young inner-city black youths at, of the time. Songs like Straight Outta Compton, F the Police, Express Yourself, and uh, Gangster Gangster wa- were, were major hits. Um, there was a massive uproar from religious and police groups. The police refused to do securities at their show, Um, This was one of the very first albums to be released with the parental advisory sticker on it. In fact, they actually kind of embraced that and made their logo for it look like a parental advisor sticker. Um, Focus on the Family actually sent a letter to the FBI asking them to ban this music because it was unholy, which (laughs) always makes me laugh. Um, The controversy only drove album sales, though, and it quickly reached double platinum. The album had massive influences. It was the first rap album to get a five-star review from Rolling Stone. It's number 70 on the greatest albums of all time. It was the first rap album included in the Grammys Hall of Fame and was selected by the Library of Congress for the National Recording Registry. Within months, Eazy-E dropped his own album called Easy Does It. It's listed as his own album, but it was really just a second NWA album because so many NWA members were on it. Dr. Dre and DJ Yella produced most of it, while Ice Cube and MC Ren, who was a friend of theirs, collaborated and uh, they wrote a bunch of NWA songs. They also wrote a bunch of the songs on this album. The album didn't get as much attention nationally as Straight Outta Compton, but it did go double platinum. The song Boys in the Hood was really the only one I recognized when I looked through it, but it, it did pretty well at the time. In 1988, Arabian Prince left... And then in 1989, Ice Cube left on WA. He argued he'd written over half the songs on Straight Outta Compton, but because Easy owned the record company, he got most of the money. This led to a back and forth uh, diss track battle, which was, uh, you know, one of the kind of the first of those um, between Ice Cube and the members of NWA. Ice Cube struck out on a pretty successful solo career and now is more of an actor than a rapper. NWA released a few singles and their final album in 1991 was titled N-Words for Life. The album peaked at number one. Soon after, Dr. Dre and The Doc 
left to create Death Row Records with Suge Knight. The breakup of the group left almost all of the members feuding with Easy. Dre said he thought Easy had gotten a big head because of the fact he owned the record label. Well-known enforcer Suge Knight threatened to kill Easy and his family if they didn't let the NWA members out of their contract, which he eventually did. In February of 95, Easy was admitted to the hospital with a, a violent cough. He was diagnosed with AIDS, which he believed he had contracted from a sexual partner. He was dead a month later at age 30. After learning of his illness, he reached out to a number of the former members of NWA to try and reconcile. Ice Cube and he made up. DJ Yella and MC Ren attended his funeral. Easy is listed by most modern rappers as one of the most influential rappers of all time, so he definitely deserves to be on this list. So you can see that the seven and eight seeds are pretty strong. Like you've at least probably heard of them. They, you know what's going on. So from here on, it's only going to get tougher. Our first contestant for the six seed is Nathaniel Adams Cole, a.k.a. Nat King Cole. Cole was a jazz singer and a piano player whose career began in the 1930s. Cole was really a pioneer. In the 1940s, he joined a group named the King Cole Trio and signed with Capitol Records. They were the first black trio to sign for them and became a template for many of the modern black jazz groups that signed with them in the years that followed. His career started really early. He dropped out of high school at 15 to start performing. He eventually hired bassist Wesley Prince and guitarist Oscar Moore to form the King Cole Trio. Interestingly, they said that the name came from the nursery rhyme, Old King Cole was a merry old soul because they really liked jazz and soul kind of music. So that's where the name came from. Cole had an incredible career, which spanned almost 30 years. And in that time, he produced over 100 songs that charted on the pop charts, which that is such an insane number. His career really started as a jazz musician, and he eventually transitioned to more pop music in the mid 50s. He had so many hits. I can't really list them all here. Um, it's tough to even mention them all. Unforgettable, Mona Lisa, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, Smile, When I Fall in Love, Almost Like Being in Love, The Christmas Song, look it up, you know it. And his last one was L-O-V-E, which was released after his death, but it's probably his most famous song. All he did was put out bangers. Um, he went to Havana before Castro and put out an entire album in Spanish that he didn't speak Spanish. He just had to learn it. After his death, his record company found songs that he had recorded in Japanese because he had learned how to speak Japanese in order to put out some songs that were popular in Japan. He was always grinding, always making some music. Cole had um, to deal with an incredible amount of racism in his life because it was so early in the 20th century. He moved to the Hancock Park neighborhood in L.A. in 1948. The KKK was very active at that time and actually placed a burning cross in his front yard when he moved in there. In Havana, he wasn't allowed to stay in the hotels he was performing at because of the color of his skin. In 1956, four assailants rushed the stage and attacked him in Mississippi. Um, There was a plot to kidnap and murder him because he had taken pictures with white women and a number of racists wanted to kill him for it. At the same time, he would play in front of segregated crowds in uh, other cities and was called a uh, traitor by Thurgood Marshall. 
This hurt him really deeply, and he apologized, agreeing to no longer play in front of segregated crowds, and actually donated a bunch of money to try and change it. In 1964, he started to lose a lot of weight and experience some pain. He went to the doctor and was diagnosed with a massive tumor on his lungs. He was a serious smoker and was given a few months to live. In December of 1964, he finished his last album, L-O-V-E, which reached number four on the charts. He died in February of 1965. His pallbearers were Robert F. Kennedy, Count Basie, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and a vast number of celebrities and politicians. Cole's um, opponent in this competition is the first member of what we're going to call and what is widely known as the 27 Club. But sadly, they are not the last. The 27 Club is a list of artists who died in their 27th year of their life. It's kind of shocking how many of them there are. And you'll see as we kind of go through this list who they are. There are a lot of them, and they're some of the best artists who died too young. Our first one is Amy Jade Winehouse. Um, She burned super bright in the time she was alive, but it was a very short career. Um, She sold over 35 million albums of the two albums that she released, which is an insane number. Winehouse borrowed from 60s crooners with her sound, her jazzy style, even her look. She had a like uh, her hair always was up in a signature beehive hairdo style. She had a very deep throaty sound that very few people could replicate. Um, She grew up in a musical family, went to a number of theater schools, but dropped out when she was 16 to really pursue creating music. In 2002, a friend of her sent the demo to a number of record companies, and she ended up signing with Simon Fuller. Um, Simon Fuller's the guy who created American Idol, and he kept her a secret um, until the record companies started hearing about her. Um, He wanted to try and kind of start a bidding war, kind of a, a viral sensation before viral was really even a big thing. Um, So he did get a bidding war and he signed her first record deal with EMI and Virgin Records. Her first album was called Frank. It won a number of awards, sold sold over a million copies and got her relatively well known in the UK. Um, Her second album was the big one, though, Um, is called Back in Black. Ironically, the song Rehab is the one that blew up. Um, you know, I'm no good back to black tears dry on their own. And love is a losing game. All were singles that received massive play. The album won best pop album at the Grammys that year. She won five Grammys, including record of the year for rehab song of the year, best new artist and best pop vocal performance. The album was nominated for album of the year. She held the record for the most Grammys won by a woman at that time. And she was only 24 years old when that happened. She was a bit of a controversial figure, though, known for swearing like a sailor and drinking like a fish. Her most popular song, Rehab, was all about substance abuse. She had well-known drug issues. In 2007, she had to cancel a number of concerts because she was in bad health due to an overdose from heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, ketamine, and booze. She struggled with a number of mental illnesses, including personality disorders. She was arrested a number of times for assault, for hitting different fans who would offend her in some way, shape, or form. 
Her addiction to crack cocaine eventually led to massive weight loss and early stage emphysema. She was warned by doctors that if she didn't stop doing crack, she was going to have to wear an oxygen mask as her lungs were failing. In July 2011, she was drinking at home and her bodyguard noticed that she hadn't moved in a few hours and she was pronounced dead from acute alcohol poisoning, but it was likely a combination of a number of different issues. Superstar Adele has said that she wouldn't exist without Amy Winehouse. As If you listen to the Grammys um, podcast, you know how big Adele is. And to, for her to say that, it's kind of crazy to think what Amy could have been if she could have gotten her life turned around. A number of modern pop artists have kind of filled the void that Winehouse left. If she'd remained healthy and continued making music, she may have filled that void herself. So we now are to the big two on this pod, right? Like we're on to the five seeds. It just tells you how big the top four seeds are when the two bands that, that are at the five seed are in the play-ins. Our first contestant is known as Pigpen. He's our second member of the 27 Club. Ron Pigpen McKernan was a founding member of the band The Grateful Dead. He was the original frontman. He played keyboard and harmonica. McKernan grew up a fan of traditional black jazz, blues, that style of music. His father was of Irish descent, but he was the first white DJ on a traditional traditionally black radio station outside of San Francisco. Pigpen met Jerry Garcia when they were both 14. They started playing the blues together, a number of coffee houses and music stores. Like many blues musicians, he decided to take a nickname, which was Pigpen. His pan, his band names named him Pigpen because of the Peanuts character, um, which had the same name because he always looked untidy and dirty and stuff like that. So it's just kind of funny to think that the, he's the guy with like the dust floating around him. Before founding the Grateful Dead, they added other members. Bob Weir was the second guitarist, Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart on drums. Phil Leash was the bassist. It was McKernan's idea to move to electric instant instruments instead of just traditional jazz musician instruments. And at that time, they changed their name to the Grateful Dead. In the early days, McKernan was the main singer and the keyboard player. As the band started to evolve more from jazz uh, to an R&B and blues to more jam band and psychedelic sound, his influence on the band began to wane. The band hired a new keyboard player, Tom Constantine, to play most of the keyboard. Pigpin would still sing lead on a number of songs. He would play harmonica, sometimes guitar, sometimes keyboard. Constantine left the band in 1970 and Pigpin took over playing the keyboard, but Garcia would often complain that Pigpin couldn't keep up with the rest of the band. They had all improved and gotten better over time, and he he hadn't gotten good enough to keep up with them. Garcia, Pigpin, and Leash would all take turns as singer, which I, I had no idea. I just always assumed that it was uh, always Garcia. Pigpin's songs include their version of Hard to Handle, Easy Wind, Hurts Me Too, and Turn On Your Love Light. I read that the dead would regularly play Hurts Me Too from um, 1966 to 72, but they haven't played it since Pigpen died, which I thought was uh, kind of a interesting tidbit. Turn On Your Love Light is 15 minutes long in album form. It's 
often the last song they would play at their conf, con, every concert that they would do. Supposedly, they played that song for 45 minutes at Woodstock, which Pigpen sings most of it. So it's interesting to hear that that's his song. Pigpen was known for not liking hallucinogenic substances. While the rest of the band was smoking weed, doing LSD or other drugs, he preferred Southern Comfort. He drank a lot. Kind of ironic that the one guy doing the legal mind-altering substance died early. He started to experience uh, health issues in his mid to early 20s. I couldn't find anything that said it, but it does seem like the health issues really coincided with his shrinking influence on the direction of the band. In 1971, his doctors told him that he needed to stop touring because his health was so bad. He left the band for a while. He rejoined the band in the December of 1971, but he wasn't the same. In June of 1972, he officially left the band, and he was found dead in March of 1973 from a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. The members of Grateful Dead were devastated. Garcia said at his funeral that this was the end of the Grateful Dead as they knew it. They stopped playing all of Pigpen's songs at concerts for a while and didn't bring Turn On Your Love Light until the 80s, which is over 10 years that they wouldn't play it. They adopted the song He's Gone as their tribute to Pigpen, and Hart said Pigpen was the musician of the group. The other contender for the number five spot is Karen Carpenter from the 70s pop group Carpenters. Just tell these these five seeds are massive, right? Like just I can't wait to tell you who the top four are. Um, She was born in Connecticut. Her brother, Richard, was three years older than she was and developed an interest in music first. He became a bit of a piano prodigy. And in 1963, their dad took a new job in a suburb outside of L.A. In high school, she started playing the drums as part of the marching band, and she fell in love and really started to work on her craft. She was interestingly terrified of singing in front of people. However, she enrolled in university as a music major, joined the choir with Richard, and her confidence began to increase. While working with her director, she discovered that she had an incredible range, which included three full octaves of vocal range, which is incredible. He encouraged her to explore singing pop music, which seems like a good idea. Um, Karen and her brother Richard started a band with a college friend on bass called the Dick Carpenter Trio, and they really struggled with styles. Karen wasn't singing in the early days, just playing drums. They found another, they formed another group called Spectrum, which worked with overdubbing sounds, which also didn't work out. In 1968, they performed on TV talent show, Your American College Show. And this is where Karen played the drums and started singing for the first time. Not surprisingly, they went on to win the competition. So just tell you, let the girl with the three octave range sing. After that, the Carpenters signed with a Records in 1969. Karen was only 19 at the time, so her parents had to co-sign, which is crazy. But anyhow, uh, their first album was titled Ticket to Ride, which was largely based on rearrangements of the Beatles song uh, of the same name. The album didn't do all that great, and they almost got dropped by A&M. A&M has to be happy they didn't let him go, because from then on, they, they really kind of turned it around. 
Her brother Richard was their main songwriter, and he spent some time with Burt Bacharach uh, between albums. In doing so, he decided to rework one of his old songs, um, They Long to Be Closer to You. And it turned out to be their first number one hit. Richard also heard, uh, interestingly, a version of We've Only Just Begun on a Crocker National Bank commercial, and he reworked it for their next hit. The two put out their second album, Close to You, which sold almost over 4 million copies worldwide and earned them eight Grammy nominations. They won Best New Artist, Best Contemporary Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group, or Chorus. From there, they went on to pump out just banger after banger. Top of the World went to number one. Please, Mr. Postman was also a hit. Um, and a number of other songs topped the charts. When they first started out, Karen would play drums and sing. However, Richard and their managers wanted to get her out in front. People couldn't see her. Karen was always uh, kind of in the back behind the drum kit. And people would complain at their shows that they didn't really have a focal point to look at. Karen always thought of herself as a drummer, but her voice was really where she shone. Um, even in high school, Karen thought she was overweight, though. That's part of why she didn't like to be out in front. She was only 5'4 and weighed around 120 pounds until 1973, which is a pretty healthy weight. Um, but then she started to see pictures of herself uh, behind the microphone out on stage, out from behind the drum kit, and she thought she looked heavy. And she was determined to lose 25 pounds. By 1975, she was down to 91 pounds. Friends and family and fans didn't know what to do. She looked gaunt. She looked tiny. Her parents tried to get her into treatment with therapists who specialized in anorexia. Then she got sneakier. She started by taking medication designed for thyroid replacement patients, which was designed to increase metabolism. She was also taking an enormous number of laxative tablets. She wanted to pass through through her as fast as possible. In 1982, she was admitted to the hospital and doctors placed her on intravenous parenteral nutrition, which is like just bags of food or sugar water. She did gain some weight, but her heart was already irreparably damaged. She started public appearances again and was talking with her brother about um, putting together more music. They hadn't toured since 1978 because Richard had developed an addiction to quaaludes. And her health had been so bad. Um, so they hadn't been out together in a long time. On February 4th of 1983, she was scheduled to sign divorce papers from her husband, but she collapsed at her parents' house. Paramedics showed up and her heartbeats per minute were six. Not 60, six. She died at the hospital later from cardiac arrest. She was only 32 years old and just super sad waste of potential. Uh, from uh, this cruel disease. So, whew, that is a lot of information. I just ran through a ton of stuff. I know I learned a ton putting this all together. I had not heard of a lot of these artists, and the ones I had, I hadn't really known their background or even how they died. I had no idea Easy Eads died of AIDS. I hadn't realized Pigpin had been so important to the dead. I always thought it was just Garcia singing. I honestly hadn't known Amy Winehouse had only put out two albums. I felt like she had been around forever. Would Adele be as big as she is now if Amy hadn't died? If you listen to the Grammys pod, Adele has won three album of the year Grammys since she came out. So it's sad to hear how they all passed away. But it's interesting to learn more about who they were and how they got to where they are. 
So what to do now? Now we vote. Um, in the description of this pod, there's a link to vote for these four matchups. Voting will be open for the next week, closing on Thursday, July 20th at noon central, one eastern. The four winners will move into the bracket of 32. We'll reveal the top four seeds in the health reasons uh, bracket in about five weeks and see who their matchups are. But first, we got to get through these first four play-in rounds. So, I think you can guess who the top four seeds are. Uh, we'll see. Next week, I'll quickly reveal the winners of these four matchups. Uh, and we'll do eight play-in artists for yet another bracket within this theme. So if you're new here, we do have a Discord server server where we discuss the matchups, the artists, what's going on. We talk about who should win, who we think will win. I'd encourage you to join because it can be a lot of fun. Once we reveal the final 32 bracket, we'll start a predictions competition too. If you could, check out our Instagram feed. I tried Twitter, but uh, the gram is a lot better. Uh, so I'm going to put most of my efforts in there. If you found this interesting, could you give us a five star to help us grow this podcast? If you think there are things that could be better, join the Discord server and give me some feedback. A lot of the format changes that I went through this season were ideas from the forum. So I really appreciate people that gave me feedback. With that, thank you all so much for sticking with me and listening to the start of season two. I'm really excited to get into the conversation and see who wins. Hopefully you are too. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. Mm -hmm.